Well, it seems like the years keep going faster and faster, and I know that's an old guy kind of thing to say, but that's what it feels like. Every 12 months seems to go faster than the one before it, and we're back here in Holy Week again, Palm Sunday, and it um, is an opportunity for us. We can either use this Holy Week and spring break and these events and Easter Sunday to simply mark the time. Oh, another year has gone by. Another year has elapsed. Or, or we can start to question whether or not we have a life that has been shaped by God's story. And when I say story, I don't mean fictional. I mean the account of what He has done. And I ask myself this question as I read this very old account again. Is my life increasingly being shaped by this or not? We, as people, are not static. We are either drifting away from Him, and we are writing or composing, if you will, a life, a story of our own that is somewhat independent of His. Or we're moving more and more toward Him, and what He has done and who He is informs everything about ourselves. Hopefully, this year, you're moving closer to Him. Now, I've read from both Philippians and Mark, and I'm going to preach from this passage in Mark's gospel. And one of the things that critical people say, people who are skeptics say about the Bible, is it's filled with inconsistencies and you can't trust it. And what they do is they superimpose modern writing methods on a 2,000-year-old account. They think to write a faithful story, you have to have the facts in the right order exactly as they happened, and there's no room for creativity or art. But we have four different Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and all four of them are trying to take real deeds that happened and craft and fashion for us an account that communicates something, and not just the facts, but rather for conviction. So each of the Gospel writers is aiming at something, and we need to understand the Bible as a whole. We need to understand all 16 chapters of Mark's gospel, and then we can start to place these events and understand why he leaves certain details in and other details out. Now, Mark has three crowds in mind that he's trying to show us are asking a question. One is the crowds, another is the religious leaders, and another is the disciples. And throughout the gospel, they're all confused about the identity of the main character, Jesus. And at the end of the gospel, a centurion standing at the cross says, surely this was the Son of God. And what Mark is trying to do is he's trying to get us to ask this question for ourselves. Who do I say that Jesus am? Who do I say that Jesus is? He says, who do I say that I am? Who do I say that Jesus is? And then what do I do with that? So who is Jesus and what does it do for you? What is it, how, how do you live as a result of that? whatever your answer is. That's a tough question. Who is Jesus, and then what do we do with it? Now, Pilate, I'm going I'm to look at two characters today, Pilate and Barabbas. They're two main characters in this little section, and contrast their response. In the first case, we've got Pilate, and as they say in baseball, he's caught in a pickle. He's caught between first base and second base, and he can't get to either. First base for him would be justice, doing what is right and true and what he knows is what should happen. Second base is peace, placating the people, keeping his city calm so that there's not an uprising, an insurgency, and then Rome comes and Caesar comes and executes him and puts somebody else in power. And Rome was really good at keeping things in order. The Pax Romana, as it's called, the peace of Rome was really important to their leaders. And they achieved that by a number of means. One was being incredibly tough 
on anyone who would resist Caesar and his lordship over the empire. Another way they did it is they had a pretty fair justice system. So the government wasn't marked by gross injustices, but they had a legal system, they had a way to try cases, and they, they would try to be fair. Now, he's torn between this, and, and Pilate looks like a weak character as you read it. He looks like a man who vacillates between opinions and he doesn't have a stand, but this is a unique situation, something he's never encountered before. When we read other historians of the time, uh, one is a man named Philo, who was a Jewish historian, and he says this about Pilate. Pilate was inflexible, merciless, and obstinate. That doesn't sound like the guy in this account. But you see, there are other things going on here. There were other things going on spiritually, and he was merely a pawn in a much bigger thing. Now, when the Jews arrested Jesus, they took him into the Sanhedrin, which was the headquarters for the religious leaders, and they didn't exactly give him a trial. What they did is they more consulted and asked questions to figure out what case they can make to the Roman government to get him killed. And we have to go to Luke to hear what their actual, their case was. And they bring three things before Pilate that they complain about Jesus. One, this man is subverting our Jewish nation which Pilate doesn't really care too much about that because he doesn't really understand the nuances of the, the Jewish nation. Two, he is saying that we shouldn't pay tribute to Caesar. Now, that would be interesting to Pilate, but how exactly is he doing that? And you either pay your taxes or you don't. You can't blame some, some preacher guy for not paying your taxes. That doesn't work in this country. It didn't work in Rome. And so Pilate's not too worried about that. Their third part of their case is the one that got his attention, this man claims to be Christ, a king. Oh, he's claiming to be a king. Now we've got a rival in authority. Now we've got someone who is trying to maybe overthrow the government, who says, Caesar's not in charge, I'm in charge. That one he has to take very seriously. So what Pilate does is he brings Jesus in to his quarters and he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus' answer seems evasive. It seems wishy-washy. But he simply says, you say so. Are you the king of the Jews or not? You say so. Well, in part, that's because Pilate put those words in his mouth. Jesus never referred to himself as the king of the Jews. His choice term was son of man, which was a reference to the prophet Daniel. One like a son of man would come in great power and glory and rule as God's instrument. Son of man is how Jesus would refer to himself, not king of the Jews. And any Jew in that city wouldn't refer to the Messiah as the king of the Jews. He would more likely use the term for David, the king of Israel. So you say so. And, and that's where he leaves it. And then he stands silently before his accusers. And it says in here that Pilate marveled at this, that Jesus didn't try to defend himself, that he went very silently before his accusers and even to his death, not fighting against it. That's not what Pilate is used to seeing. Now in verse 10 in here, it tells us this. Pilate perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered Jesus up. He figured this out. This is an innocent man. He's a miracle worker, maybe. He's a preacher. He's well-loved by the crowds. He had a big following, and the religious leaders are envious of that. They want a big following, and Jesus has it. So it's not that he's guilty. It's just that he's suffering under their envy. He figures that out, and Mark tells us. He, he has, Pilate has come to the conclusion that he is not guilty. So now he's in a really difficult spot. And he tries to do a couple of things to get out of the spot, to get out of the pickle. 
And here we see him try to use a loophole, a political loophole. He tries to do the right thing for the wrong reason. Well, it's been his custom for years to appease the people by giving them one criminal back, release, giving, pr- providing amnesty, clemency for someone who's been in prison, giving them back. So he comes to them and says, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And it says here that the chief priests stirred up the crowds. They stirred up the crowds to ask for Barabbas, a known murderer and robber and insurrectionist. Give us Barabbas and crucify the other one. That's the, the leaders have stirred that up. So that didn't work. So then if we read the other gospels, we see a couple other things he tried. One is he tried to shift responsibility. Oh, Jesus is from Galilee? Well, it just so happens that the leader of Galilee, Herod, happens to be in the city right now. Let's send him over to Herod. So he sends him over to Herod. Herod does all sorts of things, asks some questions. Jesus doesn't say anything to Herod. And after being mocked a bit, sends him back and says, Pilate, he's innocent, but thanks for sending him over. I wanted to meet him. That was really interesting. But it's back on your watch. So that doesn't work. So then he resorts to half measures. He decides, well, maybe if I just flog him badly, I don't have to crucify him. So he has Jesus flogged, but all it does is incite the bloodlust of the crowd. And they just cry louder, crucify him, crucify him. And then finally what he does is he says, I'm not taking blame for this. And he walks out to his main official seat, sits in his official seat, they bring him water, he washes his hands and says, I am not guilty of this. His blood is on you. And the crowd says, may his blood be on us and the heads of our children, which is a really strong thing to say. But, but still, Pilate is the one who has the authority to hand him over to crucifixion. And so even to this day, he's been memorialized in the creed, suffered under Pontius Pilate. So we've got this situation here. And what is he going to do? Well, probably the grossest, in my opinion, verse in the whole Bible is right here in verse 15. It says, So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. He knew what was right. He knew Jesus was innocent, and he simply cared more about the opinions of man. And as a pastor, I will tell you that is a legitimate concern. That is a real temptation. Of course, I want to be liked. I want to do what the I want you guys all to love me. But what if God says do something hard? That's a temptation. But not just pastors, not just leaders, not just politicians, not just every one of us has to deal with that in some place. Whether you're at work or school or wherever, there's a moment there when to do the wrong thing would make you fit right in and not cause any problems. But to stand on what you know is true would hurt. That is a very difficult moment. And wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate caves in, and he does a grave injustice and crucifies an innocent man and lets a murderer go free. Man, that is a crazy exchange. Now, Christianity has been accused of being against Judaism, anti-Semites, that we hate Jews and Christians want to put away Jews. But you have to back up a little bit and, and look at how many times Jesus has been handed over. That term, handed over, occurs in this this narrative a number of different places, and it starts way back further. Remember, one of Jesus' own guys, Judas, betrays him first. So Judas, out of greed for money, sells Jesus out and betrays him. And then the priests, as it says here, out of envy for his popularity, hand him over again, hand him over to Pilate. Pilate, out of fear of upsetting the crowd, hands him over again. The crowds with a mob mentality, in a frenzy, all 
cry crucify, and he's handed over yet again. And this time it's to the Roman guards. And, and the soldiers normally would not do what they did here. They don't just crucify him, and they don't just flog him and crucify him. They are given in, maybe from boredom, maybe incited by the devil. I don't know. But they, they mock him. They get all the guards together around him. They, they put him in a purple robe. They put a crown of thorns on his head, and they begin to torture him. And it's not your normal situation. So who is it that put Jesus on the cross? The human condition. We all did. We all put him on the cross. It's not just the Jewish leaders. It's not just the Roman authorities. It's the people, the human condition. The sin of man put the holy God on the cross. That's what happened. So that's the first case study is Pilate. But now let me look at the other one. Consider Barabbas for a minute. We don't know a ton about this man, but we do know that he was in jail because he had committed murder in an insurrection. So try to get his mindset. He's been in a cold cell, concrete or stone floor, cold feet, un- uncomfortable. It's not very nice in there. He's been looking at the walls where previous inmates had scratched their names in the wall or desperate prayers or whatever. He's in there eating stale and moldy bread and water, just enough provision to keep him alive until his execution. He's dealing with silence. You know, when the insurrection was happening, everyone was shouting, take him out, go for it, go for it. He had great courage. And then the strong arm of Rome came in and snuffed that out. And now he's alone in a cell and it's quiet. And what was courage has now given over to terror. He knows that when they call his name, he's going to the cross. He knows what Rome does with people who do what he did. And he's terrified. And so they say, Barabbas, they're calling for you. And the gate opens, and out comes this man to what begins to be the biggest shock of his entire life. Instead of going to death, he goes free, and an innocent man goes in his place. It's the great transfer, the great exchange that we talk about. An innocent man takes the place of the guilty. And I don't know how long it took for Barabbas to even figure what had happened. You know, he didn't probably have great communication while he was in there locked up. So he comes out, maybe he comes out sort of laughing, like, they made a mistake, I've gotten away. Or he comes out thinking, they're going to figure this out, they made a mistake, they're going to come looking for me, I better run and hide. Or he starts to realize once he hears the story, oh, the miracle worker, the man that loved people, the preacher, Jesus, he's the one that's going in my place? That's not right. And he starts to feel deeply convicted. I remember how a missionary named J. Vincent Donovan preached the gospel to the Maasai people in Africa, and he said when, the, when, the, when they first heard that the hero goes to a cross and dies, they laughed as pagans will. But then they came to be scandalized by it as all religious people must. Palm Sunday is a hard Sunday. Holy Week is a hard week. It's hard to get to the, to the resurrection on Sunday morning. We have to engage the story. We have to deal with the facts of what happened. It's very difficult to see the guilty go free, which is us, because the innocent went and paid our price. Now, there's another person at play in this story. So it's not just Judas, it's not just the priest, it's not just Pilate, it's not just the crowd, it's not just the soldiers. It's also, in a mysterious way, God the Father. Who put Jesus on the cross? Consider some of the things that the Scriptures say about this. Paul, writing in Romans, says that God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And then in Acts chapter 2, 
as Peter is preaching his first sermon, he says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up, there's that word again, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So God's purpose was being fulfilled here, and that scandalizes us. Now, let me, let me bring us back to a question. I'm wondering, as I started with, is my life being shaped by this story? What does it look like to have a life that is shaped by this, this account? We've got two people. We have Pilate and we have Barabbas. In Pilate's case, in Pilate's case, he knew Jesus to be true and he wanted no part in him. And in Barabbas' case, he was acquitted because Jesus was condemned. He was set free with a, with a second chance to serve God. And we don't really know what happened to him. We don't know what he did with that second chance. But how will your life be changed because of this story? We have to engage the story. And what do we do with it? We are, we are writing stories as people. We are living out lives. And at the end of our life, will people say, he was significantly affected by God. God was his story. The salvation of Jesus. That was a man who walked with the living God and knew the story. His life was a reflection of God's suffering and sacrifice and love. May that be true for us. And as we go through this week, may we be courageous enough to look at the story again. It'd be easier, Pilate wanted nothing to do with it, just make Jesus go away. It'd be easier to just close the Bible, put it on the shelf, don't go to church except on Easter Sunday, don't look at the cross, don't think about this, let's just not think about it. It's easier to do that. But I want to invite the courageous response of considering what happened and what does it mean for us. Now, as I told you in an email, this is playoff week for the Christians of the world. This is when it's time to be all in. And if I could speak like a soccer coach would, your kid needs to be here four times this week. All, you can't miss any. You got to be here. Monday, Thursday. You got to be here. Good Friday. And you've got to be here Easter Sunday. You're here Palm Sunday. It starts today. Holy Week begins today, and we're going to march to the cross and then through it to the resurrection in the empty tomb. And I promise you, your Sunday morning experience will be different next week if you've done that. If you just show up and hear about the resurrection and, and you skip the cross, you cannot fully appreciate it. We have to look at it. It's the story that shaped all of history, and it continues to do so. And may our lives move more and more towards a life living under God's bigger story. May it affect who we are and how we live and what is most important. So I want to invite you to pray with me, and then we're going to have a time of prayer for the church and for the world. So let's bow our heads now. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your deep love for us. I pray that you would show us places in our lives where we are not living in accordance with what we know to be true. Lord, you love us and you are willing to die for us. Help us, Lord, now to live for you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.